This is Macro Horizons, episode 44, Trading Phases, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 12th. And a word of thanks to SIFMA for Monday's holiday. Sorry, equities. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So we got a sell-off. That we did. And frankly, I was dancing a bit of a jig on the desk. If for no other reason, then obviously we have been looking for the seasonal pressure to edge treasury yields incrementally higher into the end of the year. While we didn't see a two-handle on 10-year yields, we did see a technical break of 191, which subsequently led to a sell-off in 10-year yields touching 197 intraday. Along with this move, we saw a re-steepening of the 2's 10's curve to 27 basis points. While that isn't the 50-plus level that one might typically anticipate as the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, it does at least offer a bit of solace for those of us anticipating a steeper curve into the new year. In terms of new fundamental information, what was so striking about the recent price action is that there was very little in terms of new inputs to shift the macro narrative. So in that context, the notion that the technical landscape is particularly important at this point resonates. In looking at all of the traditional momentum measures, it's reasonably safe to conclude that at this point, there's additional space for the treasury market to sell off before risking truly oversold conditions. More to the point, if we do spend a reasonable amount of time in the current zone, call it 190 to 197 10-year yields, we will be creating an important volume bulge from which to potentially stage another sell-off. Could we get to 2% tens in the week ahead? I certainly believe so. However, that's largely predicated on either consensus or higher inflation reads from core CPI, core PPI. And of course, Friday's retail sales numbers will be important as we get the first input into the consumption numbers for the fourth quarter. It's tempting to look at the supply dynamics from the week just past and conclude that the 10 and 30 year auctions were key contributors to the upward pressure on rates. I'll argue that that wasn't actually the case. In fact, the 10 year stopped one full basis point through. And while that was subsequently followed by a bid for treasuries, what we didn't see is we didn't see that truly set the tone for trading in the treasury market into the holiday weekend. 30s, on the other hand, tailed a half a basis point, 
but new 30s do have a tendency to tail, and we nonetheless saw the highest non-dealer award on record, suggesting that there continues to be a fair amount of buying interest further out the curve. Intuitively, that makes sense given where we are in the rate cycle and the comparative yield of U.S. Treasuries versus comparable investable alternatives overseas, the European and Japanese bond markets as prime examples. Let us not forget that we had a higher-than-expected ISM manufacturing print on Tuesday, as well as better-than-expected consumer confidence on Friday. Both of these contribute to the idea that as 2020 comes into focus, some of the more acute economic slowdown concerns appear to be abating. So, Ian, is this all the sell-off we're going to get? It will be fascinating to see how the Treasury market plays out between now and the end of the year. We did see a bit of a backup in rates into the refunding supply, which intuitively makes sense in a classic auction concession. However, What I will note is the technical landscape makes it a bit less obvious what the next 25 basis points in 10-year yields is going to be. On the one hand, we have been talking a fair amount about the seasonal bias towards higher rates into the end of the year. As an astute client pointed out recently, however, if we look at the last four years, What was occurring during the fourth quarter was a more hawkish tilt from the Fed. What we have seen this year is obviously three 25 basis point rate cuts to get us to an aggregate of a 75 basis point fine tuning campaign. And now the Fed is going to be on hold into the end of the year, assuming that we don't have a more dramatic downtick in the economic data. So it's a different monetary policy backdrop from which to assume that there will be upward pressure on rates. Nonetheless, the narrative is still consistent. By that, I mean something positive has occurred that gets the market excited about the year ahead. So fine-tuning, a little bit of progress on the trade front, Brexit has been extended. Presumably, the EU and Britain won't be forced into a no-deal separation. And to a large extent, that is why equities remain at or close to record levels. More generally, one of the frameworks that we've leaned on for several months now has been the Fed's going to execute a mid-cycle adjustment, and it's really a bimodal set of outcomes. Either they're going to cut something like the 75 cumulative and be flat going forward, or... The economic situation deteriorates, they cut down to zero. Those two outcomes broadly have been what we've been leaning on. One thing that seems to be evolving in the background is if the 2019 weakness, the downturn in manufacturing, slowing global growth, trade tensions, if all of that is hitting a trough right now, going into 2020 and beyond, I think that bimodal framework starts to break down. And what I mean by that is the possibility of hikes in 2020 actually become a live option, even if it's not a base case. You know, one way to think about this is you look back a year ago, we were still talking about whether or not the Fed's going to pause its hiking campaign, how many times they're going to go in 2019. They pivoted extremely quickly in response to an evolving geopolitical landscape. It's not obvious that couldn't happen again as we get into 2020. 
the reason I get into all of this, Ben, to your question of, is there more to the sell-off here? Well, the most important factor for the level of treasury yields is the expected path of Fed policy. And if that expected path of policy suddenly opens a route with hikes coming in 2020, twos through fives look potentially exposed here for a push higher in yield. And an additional point here worth discussing is the timing of the 2020 election. If we, in fact, do get to call it summer 2020 as November approaches and the data starts to materially pick up and the Fed maybe begins to entertain the idea of more hikes, even the communication of that discussion is going to be read as a fairly hawkish impulse at this point, which, given the current administration's propensity to offer an opinion on monetary policy, throws an additional wrench, at least in the optics, of whether or not the Fed is becoming a bit more political. One of the things that it is important to note here is that we're still in the process of the Fed actively trying to transition away from the methods in which it has dealt with inflation in the past. And so by this, I simply mean that the Fed does want a period of elevated inflation for a sustained time frame. Now, we don't know exactly what that number is going to be, although recent comments from Evan suggested that somewhere in the mid 2% range, so call it 250, would leave certain members of the committee at least comfortable. And if we look at how inflation has been developing over the course of the last several weeks, one might need to don particularly rose-colored glasses to see inflation that high even in 2020. I think that's a good way to frame it. The communication around ending the cut cycle and potentially moving into a hiking bias is going to be extremely important. If we look back to 2015, the real sharp tightening of financial conditions, especially in dollar appreciation, occurred well before the Fed actually hiked rates. It was a function of their forward guidance that hikes are coming. So what's going to be incredibly important for the Fed is emphasizing, yes, we've cut 75, we're on hold, and we're going to stay on hold until inflation not only breaches 2%, but is sustainable in the mid-twos. Only after that will the Fed start to hike put all together, I think a very clean way to do this would be to signal a high conviction of this through the SCP dots, basically indicating lower for longer with the assumption of inflation over 2%. One of the questions that we received recently, and it fits well into this conversation, is has the Fed's efforts to increase monetary policy transparency actually eroded their credibility as inflation fighters? Or in the current context, has it served to diminish the potential that the FOMC could be seen as credible deflation fighters? To some extent, it is easy to criticize the Fed, given how transparent they have been. Recall back in the 80s, they didn't even tell us where they wanted the overnight Fed funds rate to be until the following day. Now, not only do we know where it's going to be, we have a band and we have the Fed's projections of what it's going to be over the course of the next five years, all else being equal, because that happens. And one point I'd make with the transparency is I think the dots especially get frequently misinterpreted. And the reason is because these are point estimates. Basically, every individual member submits their best guess as to what's going to happen. The really important thing it leaves out is how big are the error bands. You might have a forecast of we'll be on hold through 2020, but 
what's the two standard deviation error band around that? It's probably a couple hundred basis points around flat. So all of this together basically implies that while there is more transparency coming out of some of the communication, it can easily be misinterpreted. A great example of this is every time the SCP gets released, you see some headline of Fed calls for whatever. That's not actually true. What it is is the median person voting or not in their baseline submissions sees this to be the case. That's a different state of the world than Fed calls for one more hike in 2020 or whatever. That is a fascinating point, John, and it really brings forward this issue that is particularly relevant in markets as well, and that is transitions are always filled with a great deal of uncertainty. When the Fed is cutting we know that they're cutting. We can interpret a standard 25 basis point, a meeting pace. The market trades in line with that in a trending fashion. Similarly, when the Fed is hiking and they're doing it 25 basis points a quarter, as we have seen in prior episodes, the market is content to price that into the foreseeable future. But it's these moments where the Fed has ended one monetary policy stage and is moving on to another that tend to be fraught with so much uncertainty. And bringing it full circle, 10-year yields at 175 have a similarly large implied error band for monetary policy and the real economy in 2020. Said differently, when we think about how the market is going to trade over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, we continue to come back to the notion that as we've seen historically, tins will hold a 100 to 125 basis point range. And the biggest unknown at this moment is where is the center of that range going to be? Is it going to be 2%? Is it going to be 1.5? Or is it going to be somewhere even beyond those extremes? We're anticipating over the course of the next month, month and a half, that we will get enough new information to have a better sense of where that pivot point will be in the treasury market. So all of this is a big fancy way of saying the front end is going to be anchored by Fed expectations broadly near current effective funds, while the long end has some space to back up, reflecting some increased upside potential. Mechanically, that's translated into a steeper curve with twos, tens pushing north of 20 this week. How do we expect this to continue to play out for the next month or so? So we've continued to hold out hope, for lack of a better phrase, that we will see the cyclical re-steepening of the twos, tens curve commence in earnest during 2019. That has yet to transpire in any meaningful way. We would need to see a break beyond 30 basis points to really want to go with a more decisive move. At the moment, we're seeing exactly how much willingness there is to push back against the steepening that we have experienced thus far. Again, intuitively, we think that the trade makes sense on a couple levels. One is once the Fed really does fully engage in a true easing campaign, we would expect the two-year sector to outperform the longer end of the curve as the effective lower bound starts to come into focus. Now, obviously that it's not a Q1 2020 event probably doesn't ultimately commence until the latter half of next year, depending on how the economic data and risk assets play out as the year develops. 
The flip side, and this is part of what is currently underway, is that the easing of some of the uncertainties and geopolitical concerns that got the Fed into a preemptive stance to begin with have allowed for the curve to back up in a bearish fashion, which again puts a two-handle in tens on the radar, at least for the time being. And circling back to our early discussion about the chance for hikes, I think this kind of reinforces what is still our core baseline expectation, and that is the economy is going to eventually roll over, likely at some point in the latter half of next year, which will eventually bring the zero bound back into the conversation, maybe an introduction of another real QE program and a steeper curve. There is the possibility, however small, that phase one of a trade deal turns into phase two, inflation does actually start to pick back up, and rates are able to stay on hold through the balance of 2020, and perhaps maybe hikes come back into the conversation. In such a world, do you think it's possible we see a reinversion of two's tens? We could always see a reinversion of two's tens. The bigger question is at what outright level of yields. And I would add that the validity of the argument that the Fed might have actually created a soft landing has certainly grown over the course of the last several weeks. At this point, I could envision the world that you have outlined, Ben, in which we actually have seen many recessions that don't actually translate through to a true technical recession. And by that, as you've pointed out in the past, John, the notion resonates that we might be working our way out of a manufacturing recession. We argue we had an earnings recession in the equity market in the middle of the year. Now, this is not dissimilar from the experience of the beginning of 2016, and if anything, is a vote of confidence in Powell and the ability of monetary policy to take the more dramatic edges off of economic performance. I would say I have two reactions to that is first, in some ways, that's reminiscent of the great moderation logic, right, is that we have more frequent ups and downs, sectors of the economy go into recession, but the aggregate economy stays afloat. We saw how that ended in 2007, 2008, and it wasn't great. So some part of me intrinsically is like, man, this eventually is going to translate into some financial imbalance and end poorly. I don't really have a strong conviction on where that might be, but that was just something lingering in the back of my mind while you were making that nice point. The second thing I'd say is, say the U.S. economy pulls off a soft landing. How far should 10 and 30-year yields back up? When considering questions like that, something I find valuable is going back to fundamentals. Where is neutral Fed policy? And all else equal, 10s and 30s are going to guide somewhere around that with a lot of other influences. But one thing we found is that neutral Fed funds is probably at 2.5, potentially even lower given the experience of the past couple of years. How far back can 10 and 30 year yields go if neutrals somewhere between 2, 2.5? A two handle is fair, but I would argue anything over 2.5% is arguably getting too cheap. Unless the Fed manages to transition into a place in which we have positive term premium priced back into the treasury market on a sustainable basis. Not my base case scenario. However, if the Fed is successful in changing the way that the market perceives their ability to deal with the risk of deflation and is finally able to stoke 
demand-side pricing pressures in the U.S. economy, we could find ourselves in a situation where we have sustainable and positive term premium. I'd even go one step farther and say that the fear in the market would have to move to the Fed's not able to restrain upside inflation. This could either be from some massive global supply chain shock, the end of the dollar as a global reserve currency or something like that. But basically, the distribution of risk would have to go towards the possibility of 5-10% inflation. That tail risk without conviction that the Fed would stop it, to me, is really the only sustainable way to get positive term premia. Perhaps I'm not creative enough to see it, but that seems like an extremely low likelihood event. Clearly, that could happen, although at the moment, it seems that all of the inflation risks continue to point to the downside. Be curious to ponder how this ultimately ends. Presumably poorly. But I thought ISM non-manufacturing printed slightly better than forecasts. All is great with the world. Slightly less poorly. In the week ahead, we have a holiday-shortened trading week. However, that does not take away from the importance of the economic data that we'll be seeing. We do have core CPI on Wednesday, and with a consensus of two-tenths of a percent month over month in October, we'll be watching for any indication that some of the recent slowing in core inflationary pressures manages to extend. Now, recall there was three straight months in which core CPI came in higher than expected, and this is particularly relevant in the context of the transition that the Fed was making via their preemptive rate-cutting campaign. It's useful context to keep in mind that as the Fed does actively try to recast how the market perceives its relationship with inflation, that higher-than-expected inflation during a period in which the Fed is actively cutting differs markedly from the central bank's behavior in the past. While this hasn't contributed materially to the re-steepening of the curve, it is a background factor, and as we get updates on the inflation front, it will be important to keep that in mind. Within the inflation series, obviously, we will be watching owner's equivalent rent, if for no other reason than it is such a significant component in terms of the overall weighting of inflation, as well as the fact that there's been a reasonable amount of volatility in the series recently. New and used auto prices have also contributed to some of the out and underperformance within the core inflation series, so that'll be another important area to keep in mind. We also do on Friday have retail sales. Retail sales are particularly important because this is the first real gauge of consumption in the fourth quarter, and with expectations for a relatively benign gain, We're keeping in mind the fact that this is a non-inflation-adjusted series, so even, for example, a two or three-tenths of a percent monthly gain is effectively flat when that is translated back into real consumption. The operative question is whether or not the Treasury market is going to continue selling off. Our base-case scenario is that there is still plenty of room for 10- and 30-year yields to grind a bit higher. But for context, when we use the phrase higher, we're not talking about 3% tins. We're talking about 210, 215. And even that would represent a pretty impressive buying opportunity for investors who have heretofore been relatively sidelined, all things considered. Our emphasis on the shape of the curve 
continues, especially as we contemplate the end of the year and what we anticipate to be continued upward pressure on twos tens. We've now challenged 25 basis points, although not on a weekly closing basis. Nonetheless, the 30 to 31 basis point zone, which represents the upper bound of a channel that's been in place since September remains a reasonable target and one that we will have on our mind as the week unfolds. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we hang on every presidential tweet, we can't help but wonder if this is just a phase, one or otherwise. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.